It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, I'm Jason Palmer, an editor of Espresso, our daily briefing app, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation about science and technology. On today's program, scientists in Japan have turned cells from a mouse's skin into viable eggs and sperm. Might the same technique one day be used in humans? You would want to be sure, if you're implanting human egg cells made in the same way, that there was nothing awry or any abnormalities in the eggs. And a perennial science question. Is there life on Mars? Joint Russian-European space project ExoMars has arrived at the Red Planet. While the landing didn't quite go as planned, we talked to planetary scientist Dr. Claire Cousins about what the orbiting part will be monitoring. Unusual gases which may or may not be related to active biological activity, perhaps deep in the Martian subsurface. And virtual reality might make its first fortunes in China. Consumers are willing to try new things. They favor innovation. They're forgiving of companies that introduce exciting new whizzy products, even if they're not perfect. First, though, skin cells might not seem like the first place to look when starting a family, but scientists in Japan may beg to differ. By tinkering with cells taken from a mouse's tail, they've managed to create eggs and from them mouse pups. Anano Bhattacharya, our science correspondent, is here with the story. Hi there. Hi, Jason. This is the same team that did the same trick with sperm a number of years back, is that right? Not quite. So what they did there was start with stem cells, and stem cells have an ability to turn into any cell in the body, and they managed to create from those stem cells a kind of cell called a primordial germ cell. Now, these cells can turn into either sperm or eggs. Now, they got to that stage, but then they couldn't go any further in a Petri dish. So what they had to do with those cells is they inject them back into a mouse's testes, an infertile mouse. And they found that after that, the mouse was able to produce sperm normally. What's different this time? Their starting point was, as you said, a tail cell from a mouse. They reprogrammed this, turned it into a stem cell, and then added a magic protein, a factor called bone morphogenetic protein 4, And that turned their stem cell into a primordial germ cell. This time, using ovarian tissue from fetuses, they mixed these cells up together and, hey presto, their primordial germ cells turned into eggs, all in a dish this time. So these germ cells then sort of decide, if you like, whether to turn into sperm or or eggs on the basis of what tissue they're surrounded by. There's some chemical cocktail in there that indicates to them what to become. Exactly. And they don't know the precise mix of what this ovarian tissue is producing that's pushing them one way or the other. So for now, they're using this fetal ovarian tissue as a shortcut. Right, so starting from some skin cells, scientists can create sperm, can create eggs, in mice anyway. It seems like this is something that might be of interest also to humans. Yes, potentially. And in fact, researchers in Israel, led by Jacob Hanna, have got to the stage of producing primordial germ cells from human stem cells. So they've got that far. Now, they haven't, for ethical reasons, gone any further yet. 
and try to implant it into ovaries. And of course, one big drawback now for further progress is that at the moment, this embryonic tissue is required. So you would need aborted fetuses, which is pretty much out of the question in most countries. However, Hannah is pretty upbeat and he thinks you could use pig embryonic tissue, for example, and the researchers themselves are trying to now analyse the embryonic ovarian tissue to see what is being produced that tips their primordial germ cells into becoming eggs. The interest, I guess, for us is that uh, infertile couples, gay couples, could have children and have the, the offspring be a genetic mix then of the parents without needing a surrogate or without needing a donor of an egg or a sperm and so on. So the, the drive for that is clear. But equally, these cells could be both made from the same donor. Is that right? That is right. So you would have offspring who are their own mums and dads so to speak, in a way that a, a clone isn't, because a clone is a carbon copy of itself, of its genetic material. But these would undergo the process of genetic mixing called meiosis, and so they wouldn't be an exact carbon copy of themselves. But we would be in a uniparent scenario. We would, yeah. Well, look, there is always a danger of looking in the scientific literature and seeing what's, what can be done in mice and then, you know, pontificating about what that means for humans. I gather we're in very early days at this stage. Uh, yes, although Jacob Hanna, who led the team in Israel, thinks this is doable. And as I said, they've already created human primordial germ cells. However, what is troubling is that in the mice example, only about 3.5% of the fetuses that they made using their lab-grown eggs gave rise to healthy pups in the end. That compares to about 60% in the case of normal eggs that are fertilised and, uh, and grow to term. Uh, that would indicate that there's something amiss with the eggs that are being made in the lab. And you would want to be sure if you're implanting human egg cells made in the same way, that there was nothing awry or any abnormalities in the eggs. So as for, you know, how long it might be, well, it's anyone's guess. I mean, if you're Hannah, you probably think a decade. However, the Japanese scientists themselves are more cautious. It could be anything up to 50 years. And there are a few ethical battles to, to fight between now and whenever that is anyway. And many people think we should be talking about those from now. Well, you heard it here first. Thanks for that, Arno. No problem. Thanks, Jason. Are you seeing your skin in a new light? Do you think it's time to start a global debate on the ethics of creation? Why not get involved in the conversation by emailing us at radioeconomist.com. Next up, ExoMars, a joint European-Russian exploration project, is seeking to establish if life does, or ever did, exist on Mars. The first part of the project consists of a satellite and a lander, both of which arrived at Mars today. Though the landing might not have gone so well, the orbiting half of the project looks to be in good shape for its hunt for life's gaseous traces. Dr. Claire Cousins, a planetary researcher from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, and part of the ExoMars team, explains how it might do that. Part of the ExoMars mission is an orbiter, which is called the Trace Gas Orbiter, which is kind of the scientific part of the mission. And this will be detecting, as the name suggests, um, trace atmospheric gases in the Martian atmosphere, in particular trying to look for kind of unusual gases which may or may not be related either to active biological activity, perhaps deep in the Martian subsurface, or, you know, geological processes that might also still be going on Mars today as well. That task may rest solely on the shoulders of the orbiter. Dr. Cousins tells us about the next stage of the project, the ExoMars rover, which is scheduled to land on the planet in 2021. The rover has a 
a whole suite of really awesome instrumentation on board. It's a combination of analyzing things at the surface using the panoramic camera. The rover has a number of internal instruments to it as well, which will actually be analyzing samples taken from the subsurface via the drill from two meters down, if indeed there actually is any present. And on such a barren planet, it's important to know just where to look. We're looking at very ancient terrains, you know, terrains which are three or four billion years old, and they contain a whole record of Martian history. And we can also aim the rover for areas which are rich in what we call hydrated minerals. These are minerals which are deposited in a liquid water environment. They represent an environment that potentially was once habitable for life. Dr. Claire Cousins there from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Last week, we discussed research suggesting that people of higher classes simply pay less attention to those below them in the social pecking order. We, of course, paid attention to all of your comments on social media. Amelie El-Masri took a line from the story itself, which said, Dr. Dietzies and Dr. Knowles' own view is that the upper classes pay less attention because they believe random strangers have little to offer. Amelie says it could also just be because they might be more likely to believe staring is rude and have been socialized not to do so. From this info, I wonder if the hypothesis says just as much about the doctor's views on the various classes as about those classes themselves. That is a fair point, Amelie. The usual story in science is that more study is needed, and I guess more is needed here to figure out exactly where the, uh, the class war is playing out. Thanks for dropping us a line. And don't forget, all of you can give us feedback, comments, and thoughts about all our content on Facebook or on our Twitter, at Economist Radio. Lastly, a word about virtual reality heading into the mainstream. Sony released its offering for its PlayStation console recently, and a clutch of other companies are introducing their own versions into the market. While the firms battle it out, one country is taking the lead in adopting the technology, China. Here's Vijay Vaithiswaran, our China business editor, talking to our data editor Ken Kukie about why VR has taken a firm foothold there. Well, it's interesting. China doesn't make the world's best headsets, at least not in its own brand. That's uh, you can argue Oculus by Facebook or Sony or HTC from Taiwan. They don't make the best software either for games or for uh, other forms of entertainment. However, they are the most eager, enthusiastic adopters of virtual reality, both in consumer markets, but especially in business markets. And why is that? It is a market that is emerging quickly as a voraciously innovative consumer market. That is, consumers are willing to try new things. They favor innovation. They're forgiving of companies that introduce exciting new whizzy products, even if they're not perfect. Whereas, say, if you're in a market like Germany, a product has to be perfect. You can't launch without. And so you find a dynamic that encourages companies to come to market with new offerings. And people are very excited to show off to their friends that they have the latest gizmo. And the uses of it, is it commercial related or is it professional? This is what's interesting, though the emphasis has been on gaming, for example, in the West as a, a high value application. In China, the lead market is in business applications. A good example is real estate. It is now quite common among Chinese property developers to use high quality VR goggles to show high wealth individuals properties in Sydney or London or Los Angeles. And they'll go on virtual tours of buildings that haven't been built or that are just too far away to visit easily. And they'll plonk down big cash to buy those buildings based on the VR. 
And it works. And people feel like it's a useful substitute to actually being there. They do. And similarly, there are fancy car showrooms that are using this to show off uh, virtual test drives. We're seeing it in architects are using it and uh, CAD CAM designers who might have previously been in front of a terminal are augmenting that with uh, VR goggles. So we're seeing a lot of early adoption and pilot uses and interesting commercial uses in China and coming to scale in those markets before we're seeing that happening in lots of other markets. Now, one of the great sectors in China is the education sector. Is it being used there as well? The government is perhaps the most enthusiastic about innovation, Uh, frankly, a little too enthusiastic in my view. A week doesn't go by without the premier turning up at some kind of maker space and declaring the love for chuangxin, which is a Chinese word for innovation. Uh, It's a bit overdone, but in fact, they have decided to put a lot of policy support, uh, proclamations, and subsidies, it must be said, behind virtual reality in adoption. So the education sector is officially encouraged and funded to adopt virtual reality technologies into the classroom. There are some Chinese companies like NetDragon, which is a software company, that are already doing pilots uh, involving VR in the classroom. Do you think it's going to be successful, or do you think we're going into a VR bubble in China? If you talk more broadly than education, if you say, is VR a bubble? Uh, It it has been a bubble for many years, right? This is not a brand new technology. There have been fortunes made and lost in this. What's interesting is now in the sort of hype cycle of technologies, it is possible to see at long last a business case for VR emerging from China. And that has to do with people willing to pay. That is business uses as opposed to the elusive consumer use. And even in the consumer side, there's an argument that this will be a market where you might see mass adoption. In the U.S., for example, if you want to try high-quality VR, you have to spend more than a 1000 bucks, go home, connect it to your PC, and you're kind of limited. In China, there are more than 100,000 internet cafes that have high-end VR goggles that for a couple of bucks, you can get the experience. And many people, when they try the high-quality VR goggles, turn from skeptics to believers. You can see what is the potential of this technology. And so that idea of low barriers to entry and trial uh, is happening in China at a much faster pace than it is in Western markets. That sounds great. Thank you very much, Vijay. Thanks, Ken. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. Don't forget you can rate our podcasts on iTunes, and we do read the feedback, so get in touch. In London, this is The Economist. 